Hey, welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John Gersma, and as always, I'm with my partner in crime and chief strategy officer, <laughs> Libby Rodney. Libby, what's going on? How are you doing, John? Good, man. Happy Friday. Yes, it couldn't have come faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope everybody had a good week. We're actually in wave 120 of weekly tracking since the pandemic began. And kind of as a backstory, Libby and I took on as a hobby to try to survey American attitudes. And obviously this has broadened uh, since COVID. So we're going to cover a, a range of, of different things this morning in four quick stories. The first story, Libby, we've got is entitled, Let Them Eat Plants. And you know what this is about? I thought this data was really interesting. Uh, we went in to basically look at how Americans are getting creative with inflation. And that includes sort of adapting to rising interest rates, sort of how they're managing their household budgets. And there's a lot of interesting things in here, you know, from a rise in buy now, pay later, to buying more value in generic brands, to even carpooling, um, and even substituting meat for things like plant-based foods. So we're going to go into that and uh, talk talk to consumers about how they're adapting to inflation. And Libby, you've got a second story on Web3. Yeah, I mean, Web3, Web5, call it what you want. It's, <laughs> it's up for debate. Um, but our, our story is really about what do consumers want from the next version of the internet? And what is their relationship right now with big tech? We see all these antitrust bills, you know, in Congress. So um, we wanted to we wanted to cover that and, and give a little bit of perspective from the American consumer voice. Awesome. And I'm really excited, too, to talk about this new data that we found uh, in what we're calling the risks in return to work. You know, clearly a lot of businesses are, are asking their employees to come back, you know, at least two days a week, if, if not more. And we uncovered in, in Harris Poll data a real interesting sort of cautionary tale there, right, Libby, around the potential equity slips and losses. Yeah, we saw lots of gains. And so, you know, without um, understanding those gains, you could you could put a lot of those equity gains at risk um, with unless you bake it into future hybrid models or ways to return to work. Nice. And then speaking of risks, uh, there's ageism in the workplace. What's this story all about? Yeah, look, we we um, we did a little study about ageism in the workplace, and we found whether you're old or you're young, um, you're finding a lot of ageism in the workplace. So there is there's a Goldilocks syndrome going on, and we have some data to to back it up um, and kind of and bring that to life. Fascinating. Well, let's get in and talk about let them eat plants. So this is a, a new Harris data this week that we featured. Uh, it was covered by CNBC, and we obviously have found as we're living through the highest rate of inflation in over 40 years. We have the Fed that, that this week raised um, interest rates another three quarters of a point. And that's obviously putting a tremendous amount of hardship on American families. And so what we wanted to do is understand how they're adapting. And I think maybe why don't we start with the grocery store data? It's pretty interesting. So first of all, overall, nine out of 10 Americans are concerned this week about food prices. There's one American out of 10 that is like on a yacht going to DVD <laughs> or something, I guess. But um, that's really because when you ask American consumers where inflation hits hardest, three quarters told us that they are impacted the most by rising grocery prices in their daily lives. That's followed 
quite closely by gas. Gasoline prices at 74%, then eating out at 42% and 39% on utilities. And I thought, Libby, what was interesting about this is that even as Americans are getting more concerned about grocery prices, they're actually also getting kind of plucky, right? They're getting kind of creative. Mm-hmm. Um, we found a couple of interesting things. You know, more than half, 55%, said that rising meat prices have made them more curious about things like plant-based foods and dairy options. Um, the other things we found is that they're taking fewer trips. 52% of Americans saying they're trying to cut back on, on gas and, and commutes. Um, they're carpooling. They're shopping for generic brands at 45%. Um, and we even have four in 10 Americans saying that they're spending more time entertaining at home uh, than going out. And then lastly, 33% are buying in bulk. Um, also, I thought it was interesting just on the geographic splits, Libby, rural Americans uh, and women are more likely to be reducing their number of trips uh, and shopping generic brands. So, I mean, Libby, what do you kind of think about all this? I mean, how do you think about this consumer creativity? Oh, I think I think it's here to stay. I um, you know, when you think about who's who's been impacted by inflation and who understands inflation, you know, Americans under forty weren't even born um, before there was inflation, right? So they've never gone mm. through this. And so, but they're highly creative and they watch things on TikTok and they learn how to make rice and beans. And we see like uh, bean subscriptions, bean subscription services like, you know, blew up during the pandemic. So I think that actually this is a lot of uncharted waters of inflation prices at the grocery store, meet climate change issues, meet overall sustainability issues. And I think we could actually see big shifts in this around how people approach things. And even if they continue to eat meat or, you know, they might just dial back. It might be instead of half the plate, it might be a quarter of the plate, you know? And and so Hmm. um, I think we'll continue to see a lot of creativity in how to keep those grocery prices down, uh, especially for Americans who are, you know, trying to either save money or living more on a paycheck by paycheck point of view, because you just have to figure out how to get creative in your kitchen when those things happen. That's really interesting. I mean, but at what point do you think, you know, clearly consumer demand hasn't abated, you know, that's mm-hmm. sort of what's driving this inflation. There's this whole FOMO, YOLO, we want to get out there and, and spend, spend, spend and get on with our lives after COVID. But I mean, at what point are we going to reach, you know, a, a a situation where consumers really have to cut back dramatically? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it it will start when it when people really start to dwindle down their savings accounts. So we've mm-hmm. already started to see that in um, the research reported out in the market. And the so I imagine that could hit around holiday spending um, and shopping. And that's something that we're keeping an eye on because as those savings accounts get dwindled over the summer, over the planned trips that are already happening, over the YOLO moments that people just desperately need, um, those those savings accounts might not be replenished enough to get those holiday spending habits that people um, have been doing for the last two years. So that that's where we might see a big crux and kind of inflection point. That's really interesting. I know you track uh, a lot of work on consumer credit with your clients and mm-hmm. are we starting to see credit card balances rising as well? Yeah, we have started seeing credit card balances starting to rise um, 
a little bit already. Um, and I anticipate that's going to rise more, especially if we hit some sort of pullback in the market and some sort of uh, recessionary wins, you know, yeah. um, which is, which it, it sounds like that's where we might be headed. So that's super interesting. So sort of a watch for uh, Labor Day. <laughs> <laughs> when everybody's done yeah. spending what they have left. I mean, we're okay. watching for back to school and holiday spending. We're watching for everything, you know, every sign and signal. Um. <laughs> <laughs> back to school. Hey, hey, kids, here's two pencils. Yeah. Um, no, not to make light on that. Uh, seriously, yeah. I, I did think it was really interesting um, that you found that there are certain categories that are actually inflation resistant. Yeah, that's right. So the re inflation resistance continues to be um, pets. Um, so <laughs> Americans will always spend on their pets. 71% um, of Americans said they were likely to sacrifice the quality and quantity of goods and products when it came to buying for themselves. But only 48%, so less than half, are likely to do so for their pets. Wow. So man, these pets are just living the good life, you know? <laughs> I mean, it just shows you our attachment to our pets. And um, during mm. the pandemic, we've really seen that grow. Um, before the pandemic, they're already considered part of our family. But I think during the pandemic, they really became a lifeline for a lot of people dealing with social isolation and just finding mm. love and purpose in their lives in a sense of seeing that in their pet means that they will continually prioritize their pet over themselves. That's really interesting. Um, so let's talk a, a little bit more about uh, Web3, the second story. Yeah, so Web3, um, our story is that it's not just about tech, but it's about access and really the decentralization of monopolies. And that's kind of what you're seeing out in the market right now. Um, in Congress, there's a U.S. bill to rein in big tech backed by a dozen of small and big companies hmm. from Yelp to Spotify to Sonos to DuckDuckGo. Um, and they're calling it a moderate, moderate to sensible bill to, to bring in online platforms like Amazon and Google and Facebook, et cetera. And in fact, the latest John Oliver, if you watch his episode, he spent 25 minutes blasting big tech <laughs> um, on their anti-competitive behavior and advocate to these antitrust bills. So there's a lot of news coverage about this, but we really wanted to understand from Americans' point of view, as we evolve into the next iteration of the internet, as we think about their relationships with technology, what does it look like today? And overall, 85% said there's too much power in the hands of a few big tech companies. 84% of Americans say the value exchange with big tech is lopsided and big tech takes more than they give. And this is a fundamental shift from freemium models. Big tech gives me free things like I'm mm. happy to wait a minute. I'm putting all the context in their one by one pixel and I'm not getting anything from it. I'm spending all my time here. Hmm. Um, and then 79% of Americans aren't confident that the current politicians understand the web and tech enough. And in the future, 75% of Americans believe the tech industry will be more important in the future decade than politicians at just wow. 25%. So there's a there's a there's an understanding that big tech has all the power. There's a perception that politicians don't know enough about big tech and aren't holding the cards. And there's another perception that big tech will determine the next decade of of what life looks like because technology is our lives at this point. It's not 
you know, just an industry on the side. It's kind of interwoven through everything we do. And so, so then we. Mm -hmm, so what do people please? want, Libby? I mean, that's he, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so then we started asking them, well, what do you want in this next iteration? Um, what's, I think what's interesting as the story has already evolved from, you know, a lot of hype around the term Web3. Jack Dorsey just came out and said, we're going to create Web5 and that's Web2 plus Web3 and a, and a, <laughs> and a, a version that really focuses on um, the user and um, unique identity for the user themselves. But it doesn't really matter what you call it because there's going to be, de de, you know, debates over industry analysis. What mm -hmm. we're here to do is talk about what consumers want. So from the next iteration of the internet, consumers want um, and con increased control of personal data and identity. That's at 87%. So they really want wow. their control. They want an internet built on the blockchain at 83%. And again, that's I think that's because there's transparency there and control. They want decentralized social media platforms at 77%. They want an open web not limited to walled gardens at 77%. And they want a climate-friendly internet at 76%. And I should say, these are uh, of Americans, which is 23% who understand what Web3 indicates. And what it means okay so um, that's that's really important right so these are sort yeah. of the early adopters the, the people that really understand it these 20 yeah these are these are the people who understand <laughs> the the concepts and the terminologies behind it but what they're saying is at the heart of the next internet should be identity and control over that blockchain transparency decentralization of social media platforms and that just means that you shouldn't have to go to just Facebook to access social media. There should be more players and, and people involved in that. Um, and really importantly, a climate friendly internet, which is interesting because it contrasts what we're seeing right now with the amount of energy it takes to use the blockchain. So there's, again, this next phase of the internet, I can say the selling blue in the face is going to take about 10 years to unfold. Okay. Uh, but it's important for everyone to understand what people are looking for from this version of the internet. So you can start applying it to your business now. And so really you can start taking those values now. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit more about like crypto. Obviously we know crypto, DAO, DAOs, NFTs. Am I saying yep. that right? Is it DAOs or DAOs? Yeah, DAOs. Okay. Well, you, I just I didn't want to show my boomerness. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but, but you found in, in some new Harris research that there's some prizing audiences that are, that are huge proponents, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think what's really interesting is when you look across, um, especially cryptocurrency and NFTs and DAOs is that you see more um, BIPOC and LGBTQIA communities um, investing into these assets and talking hmm. about these assets and working right now to build equity in the future. So having a stake in the table. And um, so it's it's interesting. We see more um, Black Americans, more Hispanic Americans in, in quite significant percentages um, over white Americans invest in cryptocurrencies, for example. Um, and then, so you have the counter argument that always goes, well, oh, maybe they don't understand risk. But actually, when you talk to these communities and the people behind them, they're saying, no, I'm being systematically blocked out from financial vehicles for the, you know, 
the last decades upon decades. And maybe this is a chance to build some asymmetrical wealth. Maybe this is a chance to figure this out. I think it's really interesting. Um, there's been a little bit of controversy, but uh, Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey just actually opened a Bitcoin Academy in the Marcy um, housing units where wow. Jay-Z grew up. And that teaches people not only financial literacy, but literacy um, about cryptocurrency. It gives people smartphones. It gives them uh, a mobile crypto wallet. And it's it's just preparing them to understand this future. Um, and I personally don't think that there's there should be so much controversy around it because financial literacy is important across the board. And then trying to build financial literacy about what the next generation looks like and how it unfolds is great for everyone and has typically only been with people who have more wealth to start with. So then the and the and uh inequities between those individuals, between people who have wealth and not have wealth, kind of remain because you never get a chance to get on that next wave of the thing that's coming. Um so it's it's just a super interesting market to watch at this point. Hmm. Hmm. What do you, John, what are you seeing though? Cause I know you're seeing a lot of data overall in, in the trust of these big tech companies and where they're going. Well, I, you know, what's interesting is you were sort of, first of all, I think that that the BIPOC LGBTQIA on crypto and NFTs is super interesting, right? Cause that goes to the heart of, of access, right? Mm -hmm. I would assume that they've been sort of, you know, blocked. There's been friction in, in the ability to build wealth because of, you know, racism, institutional sort of structures. But what we're seeing with Americans overall, you know, in the Harvard-Harris poll data is just this significant mistrust, obviously, of social media. I just pulled the, the data up this morning, Libby, but, you know, only 33% of Americans view Twitter favorably. Mm. And that's compared to 16% who view China and 12% who view Antifa and 10% of you Russia. So Twitter is like down at the bottom as an, you know, as an organization. Um, and then Facebook is only 50%, so sort of halfway. But what's interesting in this is that Amazon sits up at 77%. And so I was curious about that because I then looked at our, our new Axios Harris Poll RQ reputation data, and there was this huge bifurcation. Um, love your take on this, Lib, but a huge bifurcation between tech that makes things mm -hmm. and tech that takes things, right? Mm -hmm. Because we found Samsung was number six, Sony was number 10, IBM was 11, Tesla slipped a little bit this year, but it was still number 12, Apple 21. And then you go all the way to the other end, you had <laughs> TikTok at 94, Meta at 97 and Twitter at 98. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with, like when we talk to people, um, out in the field, a lot of it has to do with perceptions of, you know, movies like The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. People are have a really great understanding of where they're spending their time, how none of that they're they're being sucked into a device in some ways. Even if they enjoy it and they find it entertaining, they realize they're being kind of gamified into the system. And they're giving so much. They're they're creating content, they're doing all these things, but there's not a lot of return. Um and so I think that's actually like where we see some of the web three stuff come up with like, Hey, if I'm giving you all my content, if I'm getting all my photos, my videos, yeah. whatever, why should I, I be should able be... to monetize it. Right? Yeah. Why don't I, why can't I monetize it? Right. Um, mm -hmm. and so all, it makes sense that all the like hardware and software devices, or even Amazon, who's providing things to you 
um, they ha they're higher in your perception of their hmm. corporate reputation because they're giving something to you versus kind of in some ways, big tech has been pushing positioned from freemium, which is so, just so interesting to a, a taker based um, brands. Well, thanks for all your coverage on Web3 because you're educating me along the process, <laughs> hopefully with our listeners also. Um, let's talk about this third story, which is the risks around return to the office. And um, I thought this was really interesting. This is some data that we covered recently with, uh, with NBC and also with Axios. But we had a, a survey that, that found that 42% of employed professional women and 47% of employed professional BIPOC women would choose to work at home permanently if they were given the option between remote office or hybrid. And I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. And when we asked a, a little bit more into the, into the details of why, there was basically a, a belief um, that remote and hybrid sort of working situations were not only giving uh, women and, and BIPOC workers flexibility and independence, but it was also giving them the professional benefits uh, in a really interesting kind of way. Because we asked this question, you know, when asked between office and remote work, uh, women, for, for instance, said that working from home makes them feel more relaxed. And Libby, these numbers are super high, 85%. Happier, 75%. BIPOC women were actually 79%. But then it gets real interesting, self-confident. Two-thirds of professional women said they felt more self-confident um, in remote work uh, than they did in the office. Equally, two-thirds said they felt more energized. Um, over half, 57, said they felt more successful. And all these numbers go up even higher for BIPOC women. And I thought it was super interesting, just the delta between those and their male counterparts, which is basically about a 15-point uh, difference. And so, you know, one of the things that was real interesting kind of in this data is that nearly half for instance, of BIPOC women and employees and 45% of all female employees who will return to the office eventually said that they were anxious about performative behaviors, right? Having to dress for the office. Um, and obviously, you know, work home balance is one of it, but I, I, Libby, I'd love your understanding of this because they're basically saying they're being better executives remote than they are uh, in the office. I mean, what does that say about the state of an office in America? <laughs> This is my favorite research. Uh, I think because, um, look, I, I think it's really interesting. I think of all the calls that you hear about return to the office and you look to who's calling it, they're not, you know, they're not considering all the gains that have, um, that people hmm. of color and women have experienced and women of color have experienced during these times. And they're the same ones who are like, oh, it's important that we have, um, D and I, uh, mm -hmm. you know, priorities and pillars. Yet we've seen the biggest shifts in employees' happiness and their competency and their ability to get things done in their mental health by working from home and by having at least some autonomy and flexibility to do that. And yet there's these calls to come back without any regard to all of those gains. So I think, and that's where, when you talk to people, that's where you see these, these big massive gaps in perception that we always see, John, where, you know, yeah. corporate executives feel like they're doing a lot of DNI stuff. Employees say, I don't know what you're doing. Um, and it's because 
it's like, what are you measuring, right? And how are you getting there? What are the tools you're, you are to get there? I think hybrid to remote work has been one of the best tools, but um, people just don't want to look at it that way. What are you, what so, are you thinking? So, well, so what you're saying is really interesting. It's almost like you could be accidentally unwinding DEI gains that you made during the pandemic in remote work that you don't even know you got. A hundred percent because you're not asking the right questions because the questions become, would you like this benefit or this service offering? Meanwhile, the benefit or the service offering, it has already happened. And then you're just asking people to go back to the way they worked three years ago without any acknowledgement about how everything has changed. And I think that's, that's where the jarring tension is between employers and workers. And that's even where you see, um, even when we covered last week, Elon Musk, people said, yeah, that's fine. If he wants to bring people back in the office, great. But they also said, a majority of Americans said, we would understand if talent at Tesla walked away and tried to find another job. You know, it's, it's just this understanding that you just can't go back in time because it's convenient to you and that's how you used to work. It's American workers have shifted and found new ways of finding personal happiness and success. And that's not just in the office. The office needs to be redesigned to to do things again, you know, to bring people back in in a different way. Yeah, no, you've talked about that. It's like thinking of the office as event programming. You know, how, how do you go in where you're not just replicating spending $6 on gasoline to do your, to do your email. But yeah. I think beyond that, lastly on this, mm-hmm. it's really about like culture, right? What is culture? Yeah. I think managers think culture is in the office and everybody's whiteboarding and you can see them and they all look happy and everyone's eating snacks and playing ping pong or whatever. But culture is like ethereal, right? Culture could be in hybrid, could be, could be happy people that have more balance in their lives. Well, yeah. And then, I mean, not to bring this back to like the metaverse and web three, but you have 40% of American, I mean, you have Americans under 40 who feel like their digital identity is more important than their physical identity. Mm. And that's not to say that real life things aren't important, but it is to say that they very much understand and can navigate through digital spaces as, as if it's their identity. So they don't need to be in physical spaces to be doing the same things that need, happened in offices 20 years ago, the same kind of connections and forming. Now there are places and times where in real life activities are important. It, right. We just have to be much more strategic about what those things are. Awesome. Well, let's keep going on work. We got one last story, right? Which is ages yeah. in the workplace. What's this all about? Yeah, I mean, this is actually, um, so anyone who's listening, please send us ideas on, on what you want to hear, because this basically came from a LinkedIn post we had about um, people who are, you know, older Americans who are, who didn't want to retire and wanted to keep working and they wanted to be in semi-retirement. But the comments said, hey, that'd be great, but there's so much ageism. And so we went out and wanted to just research it and say, hmm well, what is really going on in the workplace? And what we saw overall is yes, everyone agrees, no matter your age range, adults 18 plus say seven and 10 believe that companies favor younger employees to older employees. Um, And that's especially true, 78% of boomers think that, 72% of Gen X um, and 64% of millennials and Gen Z. Also, interesting enough, everyone is hiding their age at work, whether you're younger or older, yes. Almost four in 10 of Gen Z, Millennials, and Gen X hide their age at work. I imagine Gen Z and Millennials are trying to age up 
well, it depends on if you're a 40 year old millennial, maybe you're trying to age down and <laughs> Gen Xers are probably trying to age down. Um, and what's interesting too, and we'll get onto the youth story because it's an interesting thing. Like ageism doesn't just affect um, older Americans, it affects younger Americans too. But what's where the validation of the comments that we heard on LinkedIn are kind of came through through the data, Gen X are specifically getting squeezed. So we wanted to just highlight them because everyone's like, no one talks about Gen X. We're a, we're a lost generation. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they're it's just for people who don't know, they're 42 to 57 year olds right now. So they're the prime of their career. Um, and 46% of Gen Xers say they've experienced being told they were overqualified for a job in the last uh, few years. And that's especially uh, compared to only 26% of boomers. And then 39% of Gen X say younger employee received a promotion over them the last four years, which is more than boomers. So it seems like Gen X are in this particular tough point where, you know, the boomers are, are, are feeling pretty good about where they are. They're, they're going towards retirement or semi-retirement, um, but they're getting squeezed Gen Xers a little bit by millennials, uh, perhaps, and uh, people who seem younger than them. Um, but then the other interesting part of the story is younger employees also hide their age because <laughs> they want, they think that if they are perceived young, if they're, their um, coworkers and superiors assume they don't know anything. So that's almost six in 10 Gen Zers um, say that. <laughs> and then they also have experienced, roughly half of younger employees say they've experienced ageism in the hiring process with um, 53 per, or almost 47% uh, of Gen Zers. And then also Gen X is also experiencing that with 53% of Gen Xers. So again, you're a little too young, maybe a little too old, like people are kind of experiencing this, um, this, this ageism in the workforce. If you're a boomer, you kind of feel comfortable with your age at this uh, point. <laughs> and then um, Gen Z overall feel like it doesn't pay to be young, though. They feel like they're being overlooked at work. They feel like they're being taken advantage. And they feel like they're um, missing out on raises or promotions because of their age at 54%. So just this idea of like, it's a Goldilocks syndrome, John, honestly, yeah. like you can't be too young. You can't be too old. You have to be somewhere in the middle, but I mean, none of that is, um, sustainable. So how do you think about that? How do we, how should we think about embracing more ages in the workforce and, and working that out? Uh, I guess listening to you sort of go through this data, I feel like I need to take some Botox and do update my LinkedIn <laughs> no. photo. No, you know, I mean, I think, and you and I've talked a little bit about this, um, but you know, we both are kind of advocates for HR to sort of be blown up and reinvented, you know, as a, as a center of innovation inside companies. And I think mm -hmm. some of these workplace dynamics are just a perfect example of that. You know, yeah. I, mean, I th think the Goldilocks economy is, is or Goldilocks workplace is, is appropriate. And one of the things that, that struck me, was that this is just everybody feels this way right in their own mm -hmm. way there was that data that we presented um or shared with express employment uh it was about a maybe maybe a month ago and it found that nearly 80 percent of workers these are boomers 57 to 75 said that they'd rather be semi-retired than leave the workforce entirely and then we asked that same group uh, if their employers offered semi-retirement programs and only 21% said they did. It just yeah. feels like the whole workplace has got to become far more 
customized, more frictionless, more focused mm -hmm. on inclusivity. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I'm not trying to paint this as a Pollyanna thing, but there seems to be like a significant set of cultural issues that go deeper than just return to work. Yeah, it's really interesting because it kind of relates to our previous topic um, where we're starting to unpeel the onion and our understandings and our beliefs around, um, you know, making sure we dissemble racism, um, genderism from the workplace. It's like the next one is ageism too. It's like we need to be open and understanding our biases here so that we can track against it, so that we don't lose talent, so that we can create mentorships and intergenerational benefits for the workplace. And it, you got to think about it, especially as like the uh, American population ages up, you know, there's huge opportunity to, to think about them. Libby, and is that why, um, last thing here, but is mm -hmm. that why there's all this anxiety about returning to work? I mean, it's just the layers mm. of different issues that seem to be in, in people's psyches as they talk about gathering and interacting with one another again. I mean, this ageism is yet just another, oh, another piece of that. That's so interesting because, you know, during the pandemic, because we spent so much time on FaceTime, there was an epic boom in plastic surgery and in Botox and all these things because everyone was kind of staring at their own wrinkles. Um, but I'm, but there was also this like really big back to work, return to the office, diet, planning, all the all these things to kind of get out of that um, pandemic. Fifteen pounds, maybe people created. So yeah, I mean, there there might be this idea when you return to the office that you also have to come back and present your best self. But, you know, really all of that is a shadow, right? Because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like when people feel like they're their more, most authentic self, they perform the best. And we're, we're seeing that they feel like their most percent authentic self, either when they're hybrid or they have the, uh, the flexibility and autonomy. So I think ultimately we just have to really be rethinking how we work, how we build culture and what that looks like. And it's gonna look, it should probably look fundamentally different than what it was three years ago. And we've just accelerated into that future a little bit faster. Absolutely, and it definitely ties into all the research you're doing uh, in and around mental health and a lot of the work that we've been doing um, with yeah. various organizations like the APA and the CDC. Well, let's mm -hmm. continue this thread. I think this is super interesting. Uh, we try to keep these to a half hour, right? So we should probably yeah. <laughs> uh, let everybody get into their uh, into their day, as it were. But um, Libby, I always love talking to you. You're always so smart. Yeah, you too, John. It's always been a pleasure. <laughs> have a great All weekend. Right. Yeah, have a great weekend, everybody. Reach out to us on America This Week. We have our newsletter up on LinkedIn. And if you've got polling ideas, uh, hit up Libby Rodney at LinkedIn or John Gersma at LinkedIn um, or send us a note on the Harris Poll website and we'll We'll try to feature your polls. All right. Have a great one, everybody. Take care.